So for the past few months, we've been in a teaching series about a holy God and the greatest redemptive event in the history of God's people before Jesus called the Exodus. We've immersed ourselves in this story in the book of Exodus so that we can know the God behind it, the author of the story, in greater ways than we currently do and so that you and I could find our place in the story that God is writing once again or for the very first time. Now, up to this point in the book of Exodus, this great event that the book revolves around, it hasn't happened. It's been talked about. It's been promised. It's even begun as God has inflicted a series of plagues on Egypt. But the actual event of the Exodus, we've been waiting for it. God's people are still waiting for it all the way up into the middle of chapter 12. But today, as we enter back into the story, we see that the moment comes, the time has arrived for the event that this book is centered around for it to actually happen as Israel leaves Egypt. So turn with me to Exodus 12. We're going to pick up the story of God in verse 29 with this. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he, Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So what God began back in chapter 7 now culminates here in chapter 12 with the 10th and final plague. In this plague, God enacts justice on Egypt, on Egypt's king, and on the false gods of Egypt for all the unjust ways that we've seen in this book so far. It's this divine act of justice being enacted. And in that, we see all the resistance in the heart of Egypt's king removed to letting his people go. After six chapters of unbending will, finally Pharaoh relents. His will is broken and he says the words God's people have waited to hear for so long. Go, leave Egypt and serve your God. And that's what the people do. That's what God does. He leads his people out of Egypt, just like he said he would. And over the next few chapters, we are going to be swept up into the beauty of what this Exodus event is. It's a chapter being told over several different stories of, about what God does to bring his people out, about what God does for his people through Exodus. But here, In this moment, we're in the early chapters of a story that leads us through the waters of the Red Sea to the worship of the God who brings his people to a life with him on the other side of slavery. 
So that's the story that we're going to be in. It's one story being told about the Exodus, but today we start with those first initial steps of God's people as they leave Egypt. And what we see in our passage today is that Exodus is both an event and it's an invitation to a better story. It's this historical event. It happened in history, and this event changed the trajectory forever of two nations, Egypt and what would become Israel. But it's also a story. It's a story that God is inviting each of us into, and he wants us to be a part of. We see both of these elements in our passage today, starting with Exodus as an event. See, on one hand, this this event is pretty straightforward. The way that the text tells it is that the final plague happens. The Egypt's, uh, Egyptians lose their firstborn. The king's heart is softened. He has had enough. He lets God's people go. And then the people, they leave Egypt. It's pretty simple and straightforward. But if we look deeper, there's a lot more going on in this text than we first realize. For starters, this is a victory text. And what I mean by that is that God's people are not just leaving Egypt, they are actually leaving Egypt as a victorious army. The text tells us their arms are full of gold and silver and jewelry and clothes that they've taken from Egypt, the enemy. This is the spoils of a war. They're not just leaving, they're actually leaving as victors. Yahweh, God, well, he's fought for his people and he's won a victory for them. He's defeated the forces of darkness and evil and they no longer stand in people's way. The enemy has suffered a defeat and the people of God are walking out of Egypt, not as slaves, but as a victorious army. And so the Exodus is not just an event, it's a victory parade. Life in Egypt has ended. God's people are slaves no more. And as I read this, I can't help but celebrate alongside the people of God as they left. And it got me thinking, what must have that felt like as they were leaving Egypt? What were the people of God feeling as they marched out with their arms full and their heads held high? Well, I, I, I remembered reading a, a book by uh, a man. His name was Frederick Douglass. It was his biography, and he was a slave in the, in the United States during the 1800s. And in his biography, he describes the experience of going from slave to free like this. He says, it was a glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom. My long crushed spirits rose, cowardice departed, and bold defiance took its place. In other words, the experience for Douglas of being set free from slavery was resurrection-like. It's entering into a new life after you feel like you have been dead. Frederick Douglass knew the feeling of slavery and he knew the resurrection-like feeling of being set free from that slavery and so do God's people. As they put Egypt in their rearview mirror, they have experienced that movement from death to life, from slavery to resurrection. On a day in history, God's people experienced a new life. They left Egypt and Exodus sums up this incredible moment in verse 40 like this. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. 430 years. Four centuries of a life being lived in Egypt. And then on one day, a day in history, 
There's a new start, a new beginning. The slate is wiped clean. Fresh air of freedom is now being breathed. This is a story about the victory that God gave his people. And it's also a story about his rescue. Because this is a victory text, absolutely, but it's also a rescue event. It's about a God of great power rescuing his people from the tight grip of Egypt and slavery and bringing his people into a new and a better place. And that's actually what the word exodus means. Exodus is a word that means a going out or a departure from one place to another. It's an act that brings someone or something out of one place into a new place. It's the act of getting out of something or getting out of a particular place to go to another one. Or to put it another way, the Exodus event is a rescue from something to something. And this idea, it's written all over our text. We see it in the movement from Ramses to Succoth. God brings his people from a place in Egypt to a place outside of Egypt. We see it in this movement from poverty to riches that Israel experiences. God takes a poor enslaved people and he brings them out of Egypt burdened with the abundance of riches that they never could have imagined just days before. We see it in the change from no favor to favor. For all of Exodus up to this point, Israel has been looked down upon by the Egyptians. But now, in this moment, as they leave Egypt, guess what happens? They're looked upon favorably by Egypt. And we see it in this beginning of this journey from exile into the promised land that begins here. Israel is leaving behind a life in exile in Egypt, a place of scarcity and slavery, and they are headed to a land of plenty and to freedom. All of this draws us into the reality that the Exodus is a leaving from one place to go to another place. And that's why Exodus is a rescue event. It's about being brought from one place into another by God. And this idea has already shown up in Exodus. If we go back to chapter 4, God is talking to a man named Moses. And what does he say there? In verse 22 of chapter 4, he's, it says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, that's God speaking, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Now that word serve, it has a variety of meanings, one of which is worship. And what that means is God has a purpose beyond just bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. He rescues his people so they can worship him. And this is the picture of rescue. The picture of rescue in Exodus is from something to something. It's from slavery to service. It's from captivity to worship. It's from a life in Egypt to a life in the presence of God. That's what rescue looks like in Exodus. And it looks ahead to the rescue Jesus orchestrated in his life, death, and resurrection so that you and I could be set free from the power of sin over us into a life with the God of the universe. See, whenever God rescues, it's always from something to something. It's a pattern we see in this text. It's a pattern we see in Exodus. It's a pattern that we see ultimately in Jesus. And it's important that we hold on to that, that we keep that close to mind because too often, too often we treat our salvation like a transaction. We put our faith in Jesus. God declares us not guilty and righteous, and then we receive the gift of salvation, a life beyond the grave, a life that is going to go to heaven when we die, transaction. 
And when we do this, we're forgetting that this isn't the whole picture of what the Bible means when it talks about salvation. Yes, we have to celebrate this. Yes, we never want to graduate from and ever move on from the reality that God rescue us, rescues us from sin, Satan, and death, and then declares us not guilty and righteous in Jesus through our faith in him. That is a thing to celebrate, but we have to remember that we are saved into a life with God and a whole way of being in the world, a whole new way of living with God in the world. And so salvation is an event and it's a process for the rest of your life. It's a past, present, and future reality. Our rescue is always in God's hands and it's always being freed from something to a someone in Jesus and in the Exodus event. That's what we see. And it's helpful to know that the someone that we are saved into a relationship with, this God is so good. He really is. He is so beautiful. And one of the ways we see that in our text is how God keeps his promises to his people. Look back with me to chapter 12 in verse 41. It says, in fact, it was on the last day of the 430th year that all the Lord's forces left the land. On this night, the Lord kept his promise to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. And so the God of the Exodus is a promise-keeping God. The promise he's keeping here in this story, it comes all the way back, hundreds of years from this moment in the first book of the Bible called Genesis. There, God makes a promise to a man named Abram. He says to Abram, your descendants will go and live in a foreign land and they will face deep difficulty for hundreds of years, but take heart, I will rescue them and they will come out with great possessions. See, before the Exodus ever happened, God made this promise. Doesn't it sound familiar to what we're actually seeing here in this text? God makes this promise and now God is keeping this promise hundreds of years later. The God of the Exodus, the God of the cross and the empty tomb, the God who is here in this moment with us, he's the God who keeps his promises. He can be trusted to do that. He will do what he says he will do. And that reality for you, for me, for us, can be a source of great encouragement and it can also be a source of discouragement too. See, I'm so aware of the tension that comes up here is that God's promises, they can empower us, they can give us strength, they can help us face the world and all that it throws at us with a courage and a peace that is unexplainable and is maybe transcending anything beyond ration and logic. But those same promises can also be a source of discouragement too, like when we don't get the rescue we need from the situation we're in, or our prayers don't get answered, or the confusion and the anger we feel when we read in the Bible that God works all things together for our good, when nothing in our life really points to that being true at all. See, I am so aware as I talk about God being a promise-keeping God that there's probably people in the room and you're waiting for God to bring you out of the situation you're in and he hasn't done it or he didn't when you needed him to the most. So I recognize there's a tension here and it's in that tension that we have to do two things. One, we need to remember that God's promise of rescue in Genesis and the, the keeping of that promise in Exodus, it was historically specific. See, he made a promise to rescue a specific people at a specific time and place in a specific moment in history. And what that means is that God isn't making a promise to rescue you from your situation. 
That's not the promise he's making here. And I know that's a hard truth, but his promise isn't to rescue you from your situation. It's actually to be with you in it. And that's the hard truth. That even though God is a, a God who specializes in rescue, he doesn't promise us rescue from every situation. He doesn't promise you or me rescue from the situations we find ourselves in. See, the reality is he may not release you or me from sickness or the sting of loss until the other side when we meet him face to face. But what he has promised is to be with us in the middle of every situation we face and to give you the grace and the mercy that you need in that place. And so we have to see that God is a promise-keeping God and we have to remember that he is a special God who does special things in relation to the rescue. And we have to remember that he's already invited us into the reality of what he's already done in Jesus because the rescue that you and I ultimately need above all is from our slavery to sin, Satan, and death. And Jesus on the cross has already accomplished that. We already have it. And you and I, we can walk in the victory of that regardless of whether or not God gives us the rescue from our specific situation that we're in. And so there's a tension here and we have to bring to mind and remember and rehearse the reality of who God is and what he's done in order to access that for ourselves, regardless of whether or not we get the rescue from our specific situation. And this leads us into the second thing about this Exodus event is that it's more than an event, it's actually an invitation to a better story too. And we're taken there in verse 42 where it says this, At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now the key word in that passage is that word watching. It's a Hebrew word, which means an act of keen observation, a, a vigilant watchfulness. And here, if you notice, God is the one who is described as keenly observing his people leaving Egypt. He's with his people. He's right there. He's personally overseeing them leaving Egypt in the Exodus. But notice how this is tied to how you and I, as God's people, are to respond as well as we live our lives and face situation after situation, the ups and downs and everything in between. Notice how God's watching is to be reenacted by God's people. In the same way that God watched over his people on the night of the Exodus, so too are we meant to have a regular pattern of watching, remembering, rehearsing, observing, so that we can commemorate this incredible moment called the Exodus. In other words, from this time forward for God's people, they are make it to make a practice of remembering this crowning salvation event in their history. And they're to do it by rehearsing it through sharing a meal called the Passover. And if you wanna understand more about what that Passover is, you can go uh, to the passage before this or after this, or even go online and, and check out the Nate, Pastor Nathan's message from last week. But the the purpose of the Passover is that through this meal, God is intending his people to be swept up into the story of what he did for them in the Exodus and in that to be reminded of who God is, who they are, and what that means for them. See, this meal was to be a regular event in the life of God's people. It was to be celebrated often, and if you notice, it's going to be passed on from generation to generation to generation. So this is a regular and ongoing rhythm 
and practice that God intends for his people to anchor their lives on. This was intended to tie the people of God forever to the work of God in the Exodus. It was meant for them to remember and to retell the story of what God did on that amazing day in history. See, it was a way for Israel to rehearse the story of rescue when God led them out of Egypt. Put all of this together and what you have is the Exodus is a foundational event that is shaping the reality of Israel's identity from this time forward. It shapes who they are and how they think and how they live and interact with one another and how they live in the world. In other words, the Exodus event from this time forward is a core piece, a foundational piece of the identity of God's people. From this point forward, this defining moment of rescue would be the thing that time was oriented around. Go back to the first four verses of chapter 12 and you see that God completely restructured Israel's life and calendar and concept of time around the Exodus. That their whole life was now gonna be oriented around this moment in time and the God who orchestrated the event. And they were to remember that by thinking about how God led them out to to freedom. And you can see, if you continue on reading through the Old Testament, the part of the Bible before Jesus, you begin to see just how central this became to the life of Israel as you read. From this time forward, how Israel understood God and his work was going to be shaped by the Exodus. It, they were, became a people of the Exodus. And I, I actually went through and I wrote down all the places that I could find where this moment is referenced by Israel. You can check out the slide and just see all the list of all the different places. And I'm sure I missed a few. And this is just the Old Testament. What it all points to is that this was actually a reference point for God's people forever from this time forward. And they were to remember it always to keep it at the front of their minds because it was the, the story that was meant to define them. It was meant to define who God was, how he worked in the world that he created. It was meant to define who they were, their very identity as a people. And it gave them a story to be a part of, to find their place in, in the middle of a crazy and wild world. And the question is, why would God do this? Why would he, why would he do that? Well, I just said, because he wants his people to be formed by this event and this story. And the way that Israel rehearsed it was the Passover. One way we rehearse it is by the sharing of a meal called communion. Or we do it when we're at a dinner table. uh, We're across from someone at a coffee shop and we're talking about the things of God together. Or when we pray or we read our Bible or we come to a church on Sunday or we attend a community group or we go for a walk with a friend and we just talk about what God is doing in our lives. In all of that, we are rehearsing the story of God's rescue. And in that, we are actually putting ourselves into the story once again and finding our place in it. And that, that is where we're being invited to see the Exodus as more than just an event, more than just a rescue event, but as an invitation to live within a better story. And it's so important that we see it this way along with Israel because you have to remember that Israel, they had been living in Egypt for centuries. They were living in a culture that believed in many gods. They believed that nature itself was infused with with divinity. 
They'd been immersed in this culture for hundreds of years and those values and the systems of belief probably started to get inside the people of God. And as much as they left Egypt behind, I, I think, and Exodus is gonna show us this, is that Egypt still lived within them. Or another way to say it is that Egypt had actually formed them as a people. And it would be a radical change from this time forward. They'd lived their entire lives in one place, being formed by the culture around them. And now they need to learn what does it look like to live in the world with God, free from a life in Egypt. See, all they knew was life in, in Egypt. All they knew was slavery. What would life with God look like and feel like and be like? That's the new journey that God's people are on. And it's the journey you and I go on when God brings us from death to life in Jesus. I love what N.T. Wright says about this. He says, like the Israelites leaving Egypt, just because you've escaped the life of total slavery, that doesn't mean you don't have to work hard to translate your newfound freedom into actual life. And so just because God's people have left Egypt doesn't mean Egypt has left them. It's the same for you and I, and that's why we need to remember the story that Exodus is telling because the culture around us is telling us a story. The shows we watch are telling us a story. The influencers we follow online are telling us a story. Academics, cultural elites, thinkers, celebrities, athletes, what we celebrate and hold up as right and good and valuable, all of it is telling us a story about who we are and how we're supposed to live in the world. It's coming at us all the time. And when you live in that environment, when you are immersed in that kind of culture, it's easy to let that culture start to shape how you think and how you see yourself and how you live. And it becomes so easy to forget the story of God and what it is saying. And so what we need, just like Israel, is a way to bring the story of God to mind, not just on Sunday, but throughout our week. So the story of what God has done in Jesus forms us instead of those other stories that are being told. This is the reality that you and I cannot escape is that the world around us, our phones, the shows we stream, the websites we go to, the movies and the pornography that we view, the people we st spend time with, all of it is forming us towards some telos, towards some end goal, and it's playing a part in who we're becoming. It happens subconsciously with, without our awareness, or as one writer put it, we become what we give our attention to, for better or for worse. So the reality is that you and I, we're being formed all the time and God is inviting you and me, his people, to be formed by him and what he's done. And for Israel, they needed that because they had never known life outside of Egypt. They're about to go wander in the wilderness and as they get farther and farther away from the Exodus moment, they're gonna need something to draw them back. They're gonna need something to put them back into the story of what God did on a day in history as they left Egypt to remind them of who they are and what God has done and the story that they were living in. For, for God's people, Israel, it was the Exodus, Exodus event. That was their story. But for us, it was the, it's the Easter event. It's the cross. It's the empty tomb. It's the story that we are invited into and the story that we're meant to live by. And as humans, we need a story to live in. We need a story to tell us who we are and to make sense of our world and our place in it. And the reality is that you and I, we can't choose the world we live in, but we can choose which story to live by. So we can choose to live by the story of politics or the tribe we're a part of, the cultural commentators that we listen to, the podcast hosts, the news anchors, our, the celebrities and our friends, or we can choose to live by the story of God, 
the story of a good and holy God who sees the pain and the captivity of the people he loves and he and, and then enters into that world he created to do what needed to be done to set them free. It's the story of the cross and the empty tomb. It's the story of opportunity for anyone, no matter who you are or what you've done, to know the creator of the universe, to receive an unshakable identity and an unwavering love that can never be taken from you. It's the story of a God who will one day set all things right and will transform this world into a new world, a world of justice and peace and love and shalom. It's the story of a God named Jesus. It's the story of an exodus from slavery in Egypt and the greater exodus in Jesus from slavery to sin. And so I ask you, which story will you live by? Will you live by a story being told by someone or something else than God? Or will you live by the story of God? And what we need more than anything is to start living by a better story to rehearse that story in order to resist all the other stories and narratives that are coming at us from the world around us. See, we can't escape this world, but we can live by a better story. And if we don't slow down and we don't put into practice rhythms that orient our lives around the reference point of Jesus and the story about him, the reality is, is that we will be formed by something or someone else. And so as we close, I want to ask you two questions. Which story are you living in? What story is telling you who you are and how to live and how to be in the world? Will you slow down to remember the story of God, to make the story of God your story? Will you create rhythms that put you in a position to rehearse what God has done and over time to have that story become the story that you live in and live as a part of? Will you do those things? And if you do, you will be swept up into the better story of God. And you will begin to be formed to become the kind of person that God created you to be. A person who is free. A person filled with joy and peace. A person who lives a life of love and closeness to God and to others. A person who is shaped by the event and the story of Exodus and the God who made it happen. Will you become that person? Then take the invitation to go into the better story of God written in the Exodus and ultimately in Jesus.